Well, good morning. It is good to have you here with us, whether you're on campus or online with us today. Um, Today we launch a series called Essentials. Now, the word essential in the last year has taken on entirely new meanings uh, in our culture. Uh, It was just short of a year ago that uh, we became aware with the term essential workers, uh, because essential workers could leave their homes last March and April and May. And those of us who were non-essential, I'm not sure that really felt good to be called non-essential. We were like, you know, you have to stay home. But the, the term essential is, is really a very important term when you start talking about Christianity, when you start talking about what it means to follow Jesus Christ. Because over the years, the 2,000 years since Jesus walked the face of the earth, there have been lots and lots of things that have been added to how people follow Jesus. I mean, for instance, how do you take an offering in a church, okay? Um, I grew up in a primarily Caucasian uh, environment here in the United States. And so when we took an offering, uh, it was much like the tradition here at Eastside prior to uh, COVID-19. We would have some people with plates. We called them ushers. And they would come and they would bring these little plates. And some churches would use buckets. My favorite was always a Church of God camp meeting with Kentucky Fried Chicken buckets. I always thought that was an interesting thing to have those out. Uh, I actually was in a Baptist church one time where they took the offering with a large wash tub, okay, like you would wash your laundry in about that big around. They were trying to build something, uh, just getting as much cash as they could. And, and so uh, that was just the way we grew up, you know, taking the offering, they'd come forward. And then, and then a few years back, uh, as a part of Black History Month, which it is this month in February, our, our worship choir was invited uh, to be a part of uh, an event that can't happen this year because choirs are really not a very safe place for people to be in the middle of, of a pandemic. Uh, but, uh, but we were invited to be a part of a gospel song fest. Some of you who are in the room will remember that night. It uh, took place at another church here in town. We were one of several choirs, and, and we were singing. And in the middle of the concert, the master of ceremonies got up and declared that we were going to lift an offering. Now, first of all, I had never heard the term lift an offering before. It seemed a little different to me. But then when he said we're going to lift the offering, the next thing he said was, and when you come forward. Now the tenor section was sitting right behind me. And the tenor section is known in our choir for being a little rambunctious, all right? And they start whispering, going back and forth. Because here's what we very quickly figured out. In that particular pastor, African-American pastor's tradition, to lift an offering meant no one was bringing a plate to you, no one was bringing a bucket to you. Instead, they were going to come and they were going to stand at your aisle. And when they stood at your aisle, your entire row stood up, and everybody, everybody in your aisle was expected to walk to the front of the room and place money in the two plates that were on the table. This caused sheer panic in the tenor section, all right, because none of them had any cash at all, and they didn't want to go empty-handed. And so one of the funniest things in my life was, was listening to the tenor section when suddenly one of the basses said, I've got dollar bills. The tenors were all like, give me money, give me money, give me money. And so they're passing it down there. So that everyone, and I, I, I never saw so many $1 bills in an offering in my life. And, 
And some people would say, well, pastor, that's just a different way of doing it. Yeah, I know. And that's my point. You see, how you take the offering is not essential. But there are some things, some, some things that are essential. And in the first century church, there, there was a, a pivot point in the life of that church. There was a place in which the church began to deal with a, a really important issue. You see, when Jesus was on the face of the earth, when he was walking and talking and teaching and healing and doing all the things that Jesus did, as he did those things, he did them in a very limited geographic area. And it wasn't until the latter days of his ministry that some Greek men came and inquired about his teaching, and, and Jesus then remembered and shared with the disciples what it meant that God was God of all the nations, not just of Israel. And yet, for Israel, Israel was, was built upon the concept that they were the chosen people of God. And so to be built upon the concept that you're the chosen people of God, and then suddenly there are people who are not from the chosen ones who are now finding their way to Jesus was a huge thing. And throughout the book of Acts, this is a kind of a little peripheral dilemma that's going on until, until you get to Acts chapter 15. And when you get to Acts chapter 15, now suddenly this little peripheral thing has become the center of everybody's attention. Because what's happened is, as we've discovered over the last few weeks, journeying into the unknown, we've, we've understood that as Paul and Barnabas went out from Antioch, and the church in Antioch was full of Gentiles, and, and they were full of people who had come to know Jesus without becoming Jewish, now as they went out and round into the other countries where they shared the gospel of Jesus Christ, and people began to come to Jesus, then there was no indication that these people were becoming Hebrews first. They weren't becoming Jewish in order to become Christian. They were following the faith of Jesus Christ. And, and, yet, and yet, something began to take place. Because you see, there's, a, there's a, a very important concept when you understand what's really essential. In fact, what I'm going to share with you today, I would suggest to you is the, if you have to rate them, most essential thing about Christianity regardless of your background, regardless of your methods, regardless of your nationality, your language, wherever you're from, whatever language you speak, if, if we don't settle on this, nothing else really works in Christianity. Everything is built on this. And so the church, because this was becoming such an issue, they, they gathered people together and, and they, they asked Paul and Barnabas, the church in Antioch, would you take some of our Gentile leaders and would you go back to the people in Jerusalem and, and would you settle this issue? Would you settle the issue of what it means to, to be transformed by Jesus Christ, to experience the grace of Jesus Christ? You see, that's why this is such an important issue, because it's grace that is essential. Without grace, we don't really understand what God wants to do in our life. Without grace, we don't really grasp the magnitude of the change that Jesus can make in our life. Without grace, we have no understanding of the promises of God in our life. And yet, grace has become so diffused. I mean, come on. There's a college in this state named Grace, all right? There are people in first service, I know, maybe in this service, whose name is Grace, all right? And when somebody falls and they do it without killing themselves, we say they fell gracefully, all right? Or some of you, you still say grace before the meal, all right? 
My boys used to like that when I would say, boys, let's say grace. One of them, I won't mention which one, would just simply bow his head and say, grace. I'm like, thanks, son. Appreciate that a lot. But see, in the life of the church, there's this word. We put it on t-shirts. We put it on banners. We put it on all types of things. And yet, I would suggest to you that we misunderstand it. In fact, what's happened for grace is that, is that grace has become a transactional issue. Grace has become something that, okay, if we come to Jesus and we ask Jesus to forgive us of our sins, then he does that, and, and it's a transaction. We say, okay, Jesus, here's my life. Now you give me heaven. But the grace of the New Testament, the grace of God in the Bible, is much more than a transaction. It's actually a transformation. It's not just simply a, a transaction between goods and services. It's not just a, if I live like this, then God, you'll do this. Or if I give you this, God, then you do this in my life. No, it's not a transaction. What grace is in the New Testament, the, the definition is unmerited favor of God. But the unmerited favor of God is something that changes us at the core of our being. And so in the early church, when they gathered these people together, there were, there were two guys, two guys who were there, who were a part of the discussion. And this morning, I want us to look at what happened with those two guys and what happened with the life of the church because of the witness that God gave through His Spirit in their lives. Uh, look with me, if you would, into Acts chapter 15. I'm, I'm, I'm going to take us through it just a little bit at a time today. Uh, I, I want to start reading at verse 3 of Acts chapter 15. So, being sent on their way by the church, Paul, Barnabas, the men who had been out on their missionary journey to the Gentiles, and other leaders from the church in Antioch, being sent on their way by the church, they passed through both Phoenicia and Samaria, describing in detail the conversion of the Gentiles and and brought great joy to all the brothers and sisters. I want you to hear that. So being sent on their way by the church, they passed through Phoenicia and Samaria, describing in great detail the conversion of the Gentiles and brought great joy to all the brothers and sisters. So Paul and Barnabas leave Antioch. They travel through. They get, to, they get to Jerusalem by way of Phoenicia and Samaria. Now, you have to remember the rest of the story. See, Phoenicia is an area of the country where the gospel had been preached by Peter. Samaria was an area of the world in which the gospel had literally been preached by Jesus. Do, do you remember the story of the woman at the well? Where was the well? It was in Samaria. And so here, here you have Paul and Barnabas with this wonderful story about how God had done amazing things, and they're bringing that story to Jerusalem, but along the way, they're, they're telling other people, people they meet in these countries, Phoenicia and Samaria. Now, now why, why am I making a big deal out of that? Because I, I want you to catch Paul's part in this story. I want you to catch the part about who these people were who got great joy. Because they got great joy because they understood that grace was not something that they deserved. In fact, they, they got 
great joy because other people were finding the grace as well. And, and there was no better person to share that story than Paul. I mean, think about Paul. This is a guy who's a Pharisee among Pharisees. He's, he's a legalist among legalists. He's got all the church background and all the culture anybody could ever want. Later on in his life, he would say, look, I, I accomplished all of that, and yet I found all of that to be worthless compared to what I found in Jesus. Because, because Paul, when his name was Saul, was not anticipating meeting Jesus on the way to Damascus. He was on his way as a Pharisee among Pharisees. He was on his way to, to go and to actually violate the church. He was there to arrest people. He was there to put people in prison. He was there to have people killed. He was on a mission for God. It was just the wrong God. Because you see, the grace of Jesus is always, always unexpected. It's always unexpected, and it's always undeserved. I mean, Saul didn't deserve to be forgiven for what he was doing, and he knew that. That's why he said, I count myself as the least of those worthy to tell people about Jesus. But here he is with his friend Barnabas, and they're traveling through, and, and they're telling people about what God has done in the lives of people all over the world that they've met, the miracles that have taken place, the wonders that they've seen. And, and now, as they're telling these people that these people are getting excited about it, there's great joy. Because you see, when the unexpected grace of God that you don't deserve enters into your life, it does transform you. It changes you. I mean, remember the woman at the well that I mentioned a moment ago? When she came out and, and Jesus asked her to get him a drink of water, and she said, sir, I, you know, I, I don't even, who are you to talk to me? I'm a Samaritan, you're a Jew. And this whole dialogue where Jesus said, look, if you knew who I was, if you knew what I was about, you'd ask me for the water. Water that will change you forever. And you remember how that woman went back into the city, the village next to the well? Told all of her friends, come see a man who's told me everything about me and still loves me. See, that's why I find it so amazing that, that Paul and Barnabas, as they're traveling through, when they stop in Phoenicia and they tell these Gentiles there about what God has done in other Gentiles, when they tell people in Samaria about what has God, you see, Phoenicians and Samaritans, they were people who were despised. They were people who were outcasts. They were people who understood they didn't deserve anything. No, no, see, grace is always for those people. But can I tell you what we're about to find out? The grace of Jesus is unexpected and undeserved even for the people who expect it and who think they deserve it. Listen. Listen to what happened when they got to Jerusalem. When they came to Jerusalem, verse 4 of Acts chapter 15, they were welcomed by the church and the apostles and the elders, and they declared all that God had done with them. But some believers key word, believers, these are Christian people who belonged to the party of the Pharisees. They had been raised like Paul had been raised, in the Pharisaical party of the Jewish church. And as they heard these stories, they rose up and they said, 
it is necessary to circumcise these Gentiles and for them to keep the law of Moses. In fact, what it actually says, as you can see on the screen, is it's for us to order them. So you've gone to all of these places, Paul, Barnabas. You've told people about Jesus. They've come to accept Jesus as the Messiah, as their Savior. And so here's what we want you to do. We want you to go back, circumcise all the men, Tell all the men and women they have to adhere to all the Jewish law, all the Old Testament law, because if they don't do that, they won't be true Christ followers. Now, the next few words in Acts chapter 15 are some of the most humorous in the Bible because of their understatement in the English. If you read it in the Greek, you will pick it up pretty quickly that this was not a little thing. But listen to it in the English, since that's our language. The apostles and the elders gathered together to consider this matter. And after there had been much debate. See, that's the, that's the crazy part of this. That word much, those two words, much debate. Yeah, in the Greek, that's not what it is. What, what it really is is they had a fight. They had an argument. After much debate about whether it's essential for these people who have met an unexpected grace that they know they don't deserve to now suddenly be forced to be circumcised, to now suddenly have to adhere to, to, to dietary laws they've never heard before in their life, to suddenly have to follow things that, that they've never had to follow. Because now, well, after all, the Pharisees would say they're going to be godly people. And after there had been this debate, Peter stood up and said to them, Brothers, you know that in the early days God made a choice among you that by my mouth the Gentiles should hear the word of the gospel and believe. And God, who knows the heart, bore witness to those Gentiles by giving them the Holy Spirit just as he did to us. And he made no distinction between us and them, having cleansed their hearts by faith. Now, therefore, why are you putting God to the test by placing a yoke on the neck of the disciples that neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear? What, what, what's being said here by Peter is, look, we didn't deserve this grace. Here's Paul, who was Saul. He's standing in the room. There's great debate. He's looking at everybody and saying, look, I didn't deserve this, and I didn't expect it. I wasn't looking for it, and it showed up in my life. And what I want you to hear this morning, whether you're on campus or online or you're watching us on the demand later, I want you to understand it's no coincidence that both Paul and Peter are in this room because they represent what it means to find the grace of God coming from two totally different perspectives. And that lets us know that whatever perspective you're coming from, you can meet the unexpected grace of God. You can meet the undeserved grace of God. Because here's Saul who became Paul. He's standing there saying, hey, like you guys, I was a Pharisee among Pharisees. I kept all the law. I stood and held the cloaks of the people who stoned Stephen to death, and I gave my consent to it. I was a righteous man. And it meant nothing. Because I didn't deserve a Jesus who forgives me. I didn't expect 
to need to be forgiven. And there are some of us on campus, online, on demand, in the world right now who think that because of our piety, because of our position, because of our mindset, because of our intellect, because of our wealth, because of whatever it is that we have experienced, we believe that we, we're fine. We're fine. But what the last year should have taught us if it didn't is, we're not fine. We're all just like Saul who became Paul. All the good that we've done, all the things that we think, they're, 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 just, they're just not enough. Can you imagine being one of the people in Jerusalem, a Pharisee from the Pharisee party, when here's Saul who studied with Gamaliel, Saul who was, who was the, literally the, the golden boy of the Pharisee party, standing in the room with you saying, look, everything you've done, I've done more. Everything you've experienced, I experienced more. And none of it, none of it connected me to God like meeting Jesus on the Damascus Road changed my life. See, grace can't be a transaction where we give and get with God and bargain. No, no, grace, grace has to be a transformation. It's not just Paul standing there. There's Peter. You know, Peter, the fisherman, the guy who walked with Jesus through all the stuff, the guy who on the night before Jesus died, when Jesus said, you know what, the, 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 the shepherd is going to be struck and the sheep are going to scatter, and, and Peter said, no, 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 if everybody else leaves you, I'm not leaving. I'm here. Jesus, I got your back. And Jesus looked at him and said, Peter, you got to know, before the cock crows tomorrow, tomorrow morning, before the rooster crows tomorrow morning, you're going to deny you even know me. Not just once, but three times. And Peter's like, no, I would never do that. Have, have you ever done that to God? Hey, God, no, I'm right there. I got you. I memorized my verses. God, I am a powerful person than you. It's the sword of the Lord, and I wield it with faith. I'll never forsake you. But can I tell you the part of the story some of you already know? Just hours later, just hours later, when they came to arrest Jesus, Peter was trying. He was trying to do right. He was trying to do what he promised. He whips out his sword when the, when the soldiers come, and he slaps off the ear of somebody with a sword. It's Jesus being arrested. Jesus, in the middle of the conflict, turns around and looks at Peter and says, Peter, put your sword up. This is how we do this. But Peter wasn't giving up. You remember? When they took Jesus away, after Jesus, by the way, picked the ear that Peter had lopped off of the man and just put it, up, put it back on his ear, he's right there on the head. I'm like, you know, that's healing, okay? Pick it up, put it on his head. And they take Jesus off to Caiaphas' house, the high priest. And it's cold night. Peter's not leaving Jesus. Peter, Peter stays with Jesus. Peter, Peter gets to that place, and, and now he can't go in, but he, but he stands in the courtyard, and there's a fire, and he's warming himself, and, and somebody walks up to him and says, uh, hey, aren't you a follower of, one of, of that guy they're in there with? Aren't you one of his followers? Peter's like, no, sir. Nope, 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 nope. Don't know him. Mm -mm. A few minutes later, a slave girl walks up. I... 
I'm pretty sure you were with Jesus. In fact, I think you had that sword. I think you, you know, no, 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 no. Later on, somebody says, hey, you've got to be one of his followers. I mean, the way you talk, I mean, that accent is just not from around here. Maybe you've never had that said to you. I get that all the time. You, where, where are you from? Oh, you're from there. Peter says, no. I don't know what you're talking about. I never met the guy. And he swears. And I love the way the gospel writers put the story because just as he, just as he denies Jesus for the third time, two things happen. The first is the rooster crows. And suddenly Peter remembers what Jesus said. And the second one I love in one of the gospel accounts is this look where it says that Jesus just looked at Peter. He just looked at him. See, Peter knew at that point in time. Peter knew that he didn't deserve grace. He knew that, that he didn't expect it anymore. In fact, do you remember what Jesus said to the ladies who found him on the Easter morning when they came to the empty tomb? And he said, go tell my disciples and Peter. See, just like Paul discovered that no matter how righteous he thought he was, he wasn't righteous enough without meeting Jesus. And that grace that's unexpected and undeserved comes to even those who proclaim themselves righteous. Peter discovered that even when you fail Jesus, even when you fail Jesus, that same undeserved, that same unexpected grace shows up. Because a few days after Jesus' resurrection, when Peter and John and some of the other guys have gone back to fishing, John tells us the story in the last chapter of his gospel. There's this beautiful story of restoration where three times Jesus says to Peter, do you love me, Peter? Just like the three times that Peter had denied Jesus, three times Jesus asked him the question, do you love me? And every time Peter says, Lord, you know I love you. See, Peter's standing in the room in the Jerusalem council, not because he's like Saul who was so righteous, but because he's like those of us who have failed to be who we said we wanted to be. Because grace that's unexpected and undeserved is also unconditional and unlimited. It's, it, it's grace that, that we don't ever expect and we don't ever deserve, and yet it just keeps coming. That, that's why Peter stood up and said to this room full of people, hey, don't you understand? You're, you're putting something on to, to, to people who are not Hebrew in their heritage. You're putting something extra on. And it's like you're putting a yoke on them that they have to do. And, and don't you really want to remember that you didn't live up to it either? You failed just like I failed. And Jesus still loved you. See, grace is essential. Because grace, the, the, the unmerited favor of God has more than just a transactional value. It changes lives. It transforms people. The way it transformed Saul into Paul, the way it transformed Peter, restored into Peter the apostle, 
who went over to Cornelius' house. Oh, and by the way, here's the fun part of that little dialogue. When I read that part, it said, in the early days. In the early days. Yeah, that phrase means it had been at least 10 years. It had been at least a decade. For a decade, the church had said, yes, grace is available to Gentiles. But now suddenly there were more Gentiles than there were Hebrews. And now suddenly everybody got just a little bit worried. And Peter stands up and says, no, wait a minute. Don't you remember how God chose me to go talk to Cornelius? Don't you remember? And then he says the most important words anyone's ever said. But we believe that we will be saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus. Get this. Just as they will. Now, here's what that means in the 21st century. It means that the unexpected, undeserved, unlimited, unconditional grace of God is available to all who think they got it made and all who know they failed. And by the way, the world fits in both those categories. You're either one or the other. You're either thinking, I got this, or I've messed this up so bad. And whichever one it is that you're feeling today, what God wants you to know is that His grace is here for you. His love, grace, mercy, His unmerited favor, it's there for you. But, but look what happened in that room. And all the assembly fell silent, and they listened to Barnabas and Paul as they related what signs and wonders God had done through them among the Gentiles. Because you see, the undeserved unexpected, unlimited, unconditional grace of Jesus produces transformation in everybody who experiences it. And so this morning, as, as we start looking at what the Jerusalem Council decided would be the most essential pieces of what it means to follow Jesus, we have to start with grace. And we have to start with a grace that meets us right where we are. A grace that, that lets us know that no matter how good we think we are, we're not that good. And no matter how bad we think we are, we're not that bad. Because Jesus died for the good and the bad. And that means He died for you. That means that He, he laid Himself on a cross voluntarily and allowed human beings, to crucify Him. It means that, that He voluntarily allowed them to beat Him. It, it means that He voluntarily let them, let them kill Him so that you and I and every other person who's ever walked the face of the earth could understand that we don't have to stay like we are. We can be changed. We can be made into the people we were created to be. We can be transformed by the grace of God. And so this morning, what I want to invite you to do, again, wherever you are, 
campus, online, on demand. And I want you to take these next few minutes and ask yourself this question. Are you living in the grace that's been given to you? Are you, are you letting Jesus change you, transform you from your Saul to your Paul, from your fisherman Peter to the apostle Peter, from whoever you've been, all the failure you've had, to who he wants you to be, who he made you to be, or from your success to your understanding of meaning and value in a relationship with Jesus Christ. In these next few minutes, I'm going to invite you. If you think you've messed it up too bad, to discover that the grace of Jesus says, no, you haven't. And if you think you've got it all together, to understand that the grace of Jesus says, you don't have a clue what he really wants to do in your life. But he loves you, and his grace is here for you. And as the room fell silent and they listened to Paul and Barnabas tell the wonders of what God had done through them, may your heart fall silent, and may God give you a glimpse of what he wants to do in your life today. Would you pray with me? Lord, Abba, Papa, we need you. We need your grace. It is essential for us in, in this era of time for us to understand just how essential it is that, that what you've done for us transform us. Right now, we come to you, all of us, and we ask you, wherever we are, whatever we've done, that you would forgive us, that you would restore us, that you would transform us. For it's in the strong name of Jesus that we pray.